Hey guys, Phil here. This episode was recorded last Friday on February 24th, so we talk about the news from the past week. A lot happened just a few days after we recorded, and uh, we're actually planning a new discussion to talk about things like SpaceX's lunar flyby mission and more on this coming Friday. So if you have anything you want to contribute to that discussion, make sure you reach out to us on Twitter at RITSpecs, facebook.com slash RITSpecs, or by email specscast at gmail.com. We're really excited to have another discussion with me, TJ, Drew, and Augie, and it's going to be a lot of fun. So if you want to participate, we'd love to hear from you and enjoy our discussion on last week's news. Hello and welcome to SpexCast, a podcast about the science and technology of space exploration. My name is Phil, and I'll be your host for the next hour, alongside our good friends TJ, Hello, Drew, Hello, and Augie is back. Good to be back. If you're just finding out about this podcast, first of all, thanks for listening. We are a group of students belonging to a student faculty research group called RIT Space Exploration, or SPECS for short, uh, and we're at the Rochester Institute of Technology, and Augie is one of our first alumni. Um, on this podcast, we'll talk with, we talk with, on this podcast, we talk with amateurs, astronomers, and astronauts. You can learn more about SPECS and SPECSCAST at our website, specs.rit.edu. Today we'll be trying a new format, which is a weekly discussion on the news and current events in the space industry. Let us know what topics you'd like us to discuss by sending us a tweet at RITSPECS or an email at specscast at gmail.com. Feedback is awesome and helps us make a better show. Yeah, so the big uh, event that happened last Saturday was the SpaceX CRS-10 mission. Uh, this was a mission uh, for NASA launching the Dragon spacecraft to deliver cargo to the International Space Station. It launched out of Cape Canaveral, Florida. It was the first launch from Kennedy Space Center Pad 39A by SpaceX. Uh, so that's the first launch out of that pad since 2011 when the last space shuttle launch occurred um so they launched up the first stage they launched up the first stage sent the dragon and then the first stage returned to the launch pad so it actually did a propulsive landing right there on that historic landing pad well they they built a new landing pad in a historic area it is a historic it is the first landing pad at kennedy space center that was not a runway what does that mean <laughs> well there's a runway well, the space shuttle landed too so not a runway it's the first. Why is this important? So this is the second return <laughs> to launch uh, of a first stage booster. All of the the first successful landing was a return to launch um, for Orbcom 2, which landed at night. So this is the first daytime launch. So we got some amazing photos you can check out on Flickr or SpaceX's Instagram. It's the first daytime landing on land. Yes. Yeah. Landing on land. We've gotten some barge footage as well. Drone ship. Yes, drone ship. The technical term. I will call it an autonomous spaceport drone ship when a rocket is fueled and launched from the drone ship. <laughs> back to the landing site or back to land? Anywhere. Into space, back to land. <laughs> back but to I was space, promised a fully self-contained robotic launch pad and landing pad. And at this point, it is a barge. So... Well, that's one of the one of the ideas that people have speculated for the interplanetary transportation system. There's been some rumors going around that they would actually build some sort of huge system in the ocean so they can launch it and land there directly. 
and just refuel. What do you think is more likely that the ITS launches from Florida and then lands and vertically lands into the launch pedestal for clamps to then grab onto the base or for it to land on a barge or oil platform out in the ocean? Well, I think the most important thing would be landing on some really precise point because then you can have all of your fueling systems directly connected to that point. And so I think that they're, they're both... They're both tricky. I'm not sure what would be harder. (laughs) I think Augie's right that that's the end goal is you want it to be able to land on a very precise fueling point. So you can just take off land, take off land without any movement of the structure. But I think it's more likely that we'll see it land on a landing pad nearby the launch site and then move it a shorter distance to the launch pad again. Yeah, and that's what they currently do, but in the initial ITS render, they have the first stage land in the, the launch mount. And instead of having landing legs that have pneumatic pistons and moving parts and extra mass, they have kind of structural fins that it clamps down on. Uh, so it'll be interesting to see if the first version of ITS uh, has that feature. Well, I think one of the first things they need to do is figure out how much refurbishment is required on these rockets because they need to know you know if we can build the ITS you know all carbon fiber like they, they plan on doing if they can actually reuse it without actually replacing any of the parts like we currently don't know what SpaceX has decided to replace or, or repair on the Falcon 9s that they're planning on reusing yes so there's a lot of unanswered questions with ITS that will hopefully find answers to in the coming months and years as development progresses. Eventually, hopefully it'll look like what we see in that rendering. But in terms of practical and in terms of especially the first one, we won't see that. We won't see it landing on the same point. Yeah, if, it's crazy. If you, uh, if you look at um, old YouTube videos of SpaceX renderings, they actually have the Falcon 9 and they show it you know, going up to space and then uh, returning the first stage and landing on a landing pad. And I, had, I think I texted TJ a couple of weeks ago this, this link, and it's just kind of surreal to watch this rendering from five or six years ago, and then it just be so representative of what we have today. And I think a lot of people are very skeptical about what SpaceX is trying to do, but you know they've already hit many of the things they set out to do. Albeit at much you know longer timelines, they say it takes two years, it takes them four, but they're still hitting every milestone they've ever set out to really accomplish. That's a good segue into talking about Falcon Heavy. Yes, Falcon Heavy is uh, closer than it has ever been, although the current six months and closing estimate is uh, still a an Elon time estimate. Uh, we saw a core that had a Falcon Heavy nose cone on it, which is the first time we've seen that. Uh, go to McGregor. Uh, We don't know if they're doing structural tests or they're actually going to do some static fire tests on that. Uh, But obviously we need one more of those side cores and then a center booster core that's going to look probably indistinguishable uh, visibly uh, from a normal Falcon 9. And once those all get into uh, pad 39A, it'll launch from there. Theoretically, the second quarter of 2017, but it could very well and most likely slip into the third or fourth quarter so is there a plan to build another landing site near 39a so that they can land both of the uh, outer boosters and then have the main booster landing on a barge 
So yeah, talking about those older renders, when we first saw Falcon he the Falcon Heavy reuse render, they had three uh, concrete pads relatively close together with all three boosters landing mm -hmm. with the separation. Mm -hmm. um, but with Landing Zone 1, which is the current East Coast landing site, they put in a permit with the FAA to expand that. So they'll have a second concrete ring. So that'll handle both the left and right boosters. And then most likely, especially for the demo mission, because we predict it's going to be a, a very um, strenuous or difficult test of the hardware, they're going to have to land the third booster, the center booster, on a, the barge. I bet they'll probably want to do that in most cases as well, because with Falcon Heavy, they're really trying to get the most mass to orbit to kind of get those bigger satellites as, as part of their customer base. So I suspect most of their launches will probably be the main booster of, of the Falcon Heavy landing on a, on a um, barge or a drone ship, don't you think? Well, it's interesting. It's We're seeing with UTELSAT, uh, which is an upcoming SpaceX launch, and Intelsat, that there are... Uh, heavy geostationary commsats that are too heavy for a Falcon 9 to launch and re be reused by landing on the barge or at the launch site. And so the general plan has been for those too heavy for Falcon 9, launch them on Falcon Heavy with a bunch of margin and then reuse mm. Falcon Heavy. And it'll still be cost effective if you could do that. Uh, so we're seeing like there's going to be at least one, maybe two expendable Falcon 9 flights this year, uh, which is unfortunate from a reuse perspective. But, you know, it's a, it's a paid for mission. Um, but with Falcon Heavy, if you're launching a six or seven metric ton satellite with a Falcon Heavy that has a low Earth orbit payload of 50 metric tons, then you might have enough margin to re return to launch site the side boosters and maybe even the center booster, uh, depending on the flight profile and what they do. Did you guys see the images that came out of the, the Falcon 9 on its side getting loaded with um, cargo into the into Dragon? Oh, with the little clean room that was attached to it when it was laying down? Yeah. Yeah, that was kind of a neat neat photo. That uh, clean room is for what's called late load cargo. So Dragon is taking uh, not only consumes like food and supplies, but also experiments to the ISS. And certain experiments require a very short timeline between their controlled start on Earth and when they get to orbit. And so being able to start that, you know, a day or two before the, the launch and put it in within 24 hours and then get it out and launch it is super, super beneficial to NASA. Also, they have perishable food like fruits and vegetables and other things that they're able to bring up on those cargo launches. And so what was really awesome is we got to see this photo of the clean room that's on the pad uh, with the dragon kind of laying on top, uh, which was a feature of this new pad. One of the previous, we couldn't get a good angle of it. Wait, wait, wait. So just to clarify here, the feature was that we could get a good photograph of the clean room or they couldn't previously do this? Yes, it's it's been there on every dragon flight. Uh, but just the way that drag the Falcon like lays down at SLC 40 mm -hmm. and where cameras are allowed, we weren't able to get a good picture. Um, so it's to my knowledge, this is the best picture we have of it. Uh, but this was also they were able to load over a thousand kilograms of cargo within that 24 hour period. So that's a lot of boxes and bags and stuff that they have to efficiently and safely pack in there. Yeah, they launched a, a lot of mice as well for some scientific experiments they're doing on uh, the space station, right? Mousternauts. Yeah, they seem to do that pretty frequently. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I think they've launched um, Mousternaut experiments 
uh, on a few of these uh, dragon flights. They have a little like engineered box, which is kind of like a like mouse cage you would have on Earth, uh, except you know space age design that has a little like ECLA. ECLSS system, so environmental control system, that gives them air, airflow, and water, and they have like food in there as well. Because as we've seen, Dragon just docked, when we're recording this, Dragon just docked uh, this morning. It takes a few days from launch for Cargo Dragon to dock to the space station. So they have to be, you know, kept cared for during orbit. And we should say now that Dragon has successfully docked with the space station. Which is always just so cool to watch. Just the Canada arm is fun. The Canada arm grabbing it? Yeah. Yeah, I don't watch those as often as I watch the launches. I usually try and make an effort to watch every launch, but I've only seen maybe two or three of the Canada arm grabbing and docking the dragon. But it's pretty cool. Dockings are really... It's it's a challenge to watch because they are not quick events. Like a launch is, what, eight minutes or ten minutes for a Leo launch between start and like mission success. When a docking can take like two hours where it's slowly coming together and there's the safety checks. and Yeah, but YouTube, you can 3x the video speed or 4x it and just watch the recap. <laughs> that, is, that is the best way to launch those. There's some really cool uh, Soyuz docking videos. Uh, Soyuz and Progress have like autom- a fully automated docking uh, program. And so they have a they had a camera mounted and so you can see it. You know, rendezvous with the station, line up, and then move in and dock all autonomously, which is what Dragon does as well. Well, what's their plan for the International Docking Adapter? Because I know they had been trying to get an IDA up to the International Space Station for a while. Uh, the first one, unfortunately, was lost with CRS-7, uh, but they, they, they basically rebuilt it, and they've launched it, and it's there now. And so is the plan to install it for use for uh, Dragon 2, Crew Dragon, and for other, like the Orion capsule and stuff like that? What's kind of the plan there with the IDA? Well, Orion is not going to be going to the ISS. All of its missions are going to be farther than ISS. But again, Crew Dragon and Starliner are going to be using IDA. Um, according to Wikipedia, the IDA-2 was launched on Cirrus 9 um, before Amos 6 last year. And but it, it was attached But to the IDA was adapter. on Cirrus 7. It was initially supposed to be installed as part of Cirrus 7. Yes, IDA-1 was lost with Cirrus 7. Mm-hmm. Then they launched IDA-2. And that's been launched and installed. Yep. And then they built IDA-3 out of spare components. Gotcha. Yeah, that was probably based on the fact that they lost the first one. They wanted to make sure that they always had a backup. And so so essentially IDA-2 is installed. It's on the ISS now, but no one is using it yet. No one will be using it until Crew Dragon and Starliner are, are heavy flights. Yeah, exactly. Oh, yeah. I, I saw AFSS and I added it to the show notes because I thought it'd be something cool to talk about. Um, basically what they're trying to do is, um, have an autonomous, um, basically it's called an autonomous flight, uh, termination system, which is going to replace, uh, the range safety, uh, officer's job. So what the range safety officer would do is basically trigger the termination of the rocket manually if there was any sort of anomaly. And this is, I believe, what happened with uh, Cirrus 7. Um, and I mean, that, that rocket you know, should have blown up anyway because there was a problem. But what this autonomous system would do is basically monitor the, um, all the, you know, the trajectories and all the data coming back from the rocket to know whether or not to, if it needs to terminate it um, because it has some risk of, of 
you know, hitting land or hitting humans or being off course. So that's not already implemented? I thought CRS-7 uh, terminated autonomously. I thought that's why there was that loss of mission. Or was that a man-in-the-loop range safety officer that terminated that mission? Looking back on CRS-7, uh, the AFSS or AFTS uh, has been rumored to have been operational for a while. Uh, but according to Gwyn Shotwell at the pre-CRS-10 press conference, it's been running in shadow mode, but this is CRS-10 was the first flight in which it had the actual authority to um, terminate the vehicle. What do you mean by shadow mode? So it was, the software was running, it was reading the sensors, and it was sending its judgment of the mission down, um, but it did not have the authority to actually detonate the rocket. Only the person on the ground did. And so they did that for a few flights, and they were able to match what the sensors on board the rocket saw versus what the people on the ground saw, etc. Uh, and so knowing that, that it's been running in shadow mode, we can now rule out that it was it was not triggered at all during CRS-7. And again, as Augie mentioned, with the uh, first or the second stage explosion, then we can basically assume that the first stage also exploded during that uh, anomaly. Uh, now, the Air Force range did make a statement saying that they had sent a flight termination signal during that mission, uh, but we don't know if the booster was originally destroyed from aerodynamics or if it was actually intact until that signal was sent. We just don't know. Um, and I, the only real way to know is to like look at the timestamps of when things happened. To get away from uh, CRS-7 and move toward having the automated system actually have the authority to terminate a mission without that human action, how significant is that? And what does that mean for uh, the role of the range safety officer in the future? So I, th I certainly think it's significant from the perspective that now we'll have the capability of launching more rockets and not needing to worry about having a range safety officer there that is collecting all of the data and is always on point, ready to terminate that rocket if, if need be. If you have an autonomous system doing it, you can scale pretty much indefinitely. And I think that's going to be really important as SpaceX increases its cadence and wants to start landing directly on its next launch site. I wonder, though, if it's something that's necessary, if there's just policy in place that there has to be a human in control. So it could run concurrently with the software, but there also potentially has to be a human range safety officer there. And I wonder if that's something that will be phased out, if it's even a thing currently, or if that a human will always have to be involved. It's also uh, interesting to think about that in terms of manned missions as well. TJ, go ahead. So to respond to Drew, uh, NASA is really excited about getting off of the current range safety like protocol. Um, there's a person who was at the press conference that I can look up if it matters, but he was a, an astronaut who flew on the space shuttle four times, and he was asked this question of, "Do you feel comfortable when you're if you were flying on Crew Dragon, which is fully autonomous, no pilot input, and on a rocket with a fully autonomous flight termination system where there is no manned input at all in the launch?" Um, would you feel comfortable flying on that? And his uh, answer, to paraphrase, was that, that yes, he would feel comfortable because there is less possibility for mistake. Uh, and he specifically pointed out that with a flight termination officer, uh, you have a narrow three-dimensional kind of funnel of where that rocket is allowed to fly through. And the officer is looking at the telemetry coming in. He knows the state of the vehicle, and he can kind of predict where it's going to be 
But with the autonomous uh, system, it is tied into the rocket's own software that's controlling it. And so, for example, if the rocket was heading towards the edge of that funnel where you would have to send the abort and destroy the rocket, the software would know that the rocket is already correcting that. It will actually be able to correct and stay within the funnel and it would not abort. And so it actually lets you kind of skirt the edges, um, which in some cases can be bad, but in this case it is good and it will allow for more successful and more precise control over the rocket. Yeah, it seems robustness is a real word here and also reaction time. So if something goes wrong, um, there could be the computer's delay time instead of the human's judgment and reaction time, physical reaction time for detonation. Termination. Well, I think that's interesting because Chris Chris Hadfield gave a, a very kind of different answer when we asked him a similar question last year during our interview. Um, you know, we asked something about you know how comfortable would you be in something like Crew Dragon, which is fully autonomous and has very little manual control. And and his point was that you know I need to look at the underlying features, the underlying control mechanisms for this system before I'm going to place my trust in this. And, and, you know, maybe that's already what, what NASA and everyone has done with AFSS, and that's why people feel so comfortable moving toward it. But I think kind of it's, it's a big question. And, and to Drew's point, I, I also wonder if there's still a person there, even though AFSS is now the primary means of terminating the, the rocket, if there's an anomaly, if there's still a person required to be there to terminate it in case there's, there's something that happens. I suspect early in its career, it'll still, there'll be a human there, because as I think Part of uh, my interpretation of Chris Hadfield's comment was that the this autonomous software is designed by humans and humans can make mistakes. So those engineers could have just as easily made a mistake and the software could function in an unexpected way. Um, but this whole idea of autonomous control systems is bringing to mind for me uh, autonomous driving, just cars, autonomously controlled cars. And I wonder if you guys see that and if there's any ethical concern that would come into play or if, if if these two industries will build off one another in terms of policy that gets formed about autonomous control, especially when human life is involved. I mean, the one luxury that, that rockets have in terms of autonomous control and, and this sort of thing is that um, especially as the flight cadence increases and we see more flights using this more and more um, that are carrying cargo that is not humans, like uh, satellites and other payloads, you're not risking human life, per se, on top of a rocket. And you can test these autonomous systems in different cases and make it more robust over time. Uh, whereas in an autonomous car or a self-driving car, um, it's the main point of that is to carry people. Um, eventually, we'd like rockets to carry people too, but we can improve them on um, not unmanned payloads. Yeah. Another kind of uh, point of view on that is that with autonomous cars operating on public roads, you have the computer in the car that knows the car state, but is using remote sensing to figure out the state of everything around it. And with until a far future where every single car is autonomous and there's some way to communicate, you have humans involved that can react and be unpredictable with a rocket launch. They have very accurate models of aerodynamic models and physical models, how the rocket behaves, and an incredible amount of instrumentation. So once you get out of the pad and you get rid of 
rid of most weather effects. You're basically operating in your own 3D space solely focused on the state of the vehicle. And you can make pretty accurate predictions of if you put in this input, you'll get this output and stay in that safe range. When compared to an autonomous car, if you make an input, your environment might change unexpectedly to that input. And that's where a lot of the ethical uh, concerns with autonomous cars come into play where, you know, which direction do you turn? Who do you save? All that kind of stuff, which you just don't have with a rocket. All right, let's move on a little bit to some more SpaceX news. The Red Dragon mission, which is sending a modified Crew Dragon capsule to Mars, has been delayed until 2020. I think we saw that coming. <laughs> yeah, so it's it's interesting. Uh, obviously, that 2018 uh, launch window and timeline was if everything goes right and we're able to put work down and if Crew Dragon progresses as well, we'll be able to launch at the earliest. Uh, obviously, one big thing didn't go right, uh, which was AMO 6. And as Gwyn Shotwell uh, mentioned in the press conference, is that they're redirecting resources that might have been used on preparing for Red Dragon to focus on commercial crew, to focus on Falcon 9, make sure everything gets locked down and they're able to be efficient and safe with their customers because commercial launches are how they bring in revenue and how they fund these Mars missions, how they fund ITS development. And so they have to make sure that those are working. Do you think um, Falcon Heavy's development is still feeding into delays for Red Dragon? Because Falcon Heavy would be required to deliver Dragon to uh, Mars. A Falcon 9 can't do that. Falcon Heavy is is on a whole, there's a whole different set of reasons why it's been delayed. Because originally it was 2013 was the first launch. No, I'm not saying why is Falcon Heavy delayed. I'm saying is Falcon Heavy's development affecting it causing these Red Dragon delays as well. I I wouldn't think so. Uh, we're supposed to see the first Falcon Heavy launch within a couple months or within a year, uh, so it would have been ready by 2018. I I would say that it's it's part of it, but it's indirectly caused by Falcon Nine improvements. I think one of the things that they found when they build their rockets is that they've been able to essentially improve Falcon Nine not just like incrementally but substantially with the different upgrades that they've done to Falcon 9. And right now they're talking about building a Falcon 9 Block 5, which essentially would allow full reusability, including the basically cryogenic refueling of, of, um, of their rockets so that they could you know, get those uh, lower, lower densities so that they could pack more fuel in there so they could do bigger missions. And I think because they keep improving Falcon 9, they've, they've realized that it's not worth them building Falcon Heavy with an older architecture. They want to use a lot of the things they've learned from Falcon 9 to implement on Falcon Heavy. And, and because they've been doing that, because they keep you know shifting their focus between the two things, they're also working on Crew Dragon, and that's getting delayed. I think they've kind of realized that they need to focus on their, their core things first and then launch Falcon Heavy when it's fully ready. I mean, heck, they could maybe launch two Red Dragons in 2022 or 2024. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and that's definitely one of the reasons we've seen Falcon Heavy just kind of slip and slip and slip. Uh, but again, with, with Red Dragon, they have a astronomical window in which to launch to Mars. And so if you have a, you know, a six months delay is which Amos 6 ended up becoming, and that pushes everything forward six months, that would push a 2018 launch window out of that window. And it's really not feasible or practical to launch outside of that window. And that means your next uh, possible launch is in 2020. And so, you know, we might not be looking at a two year 
delay in Red Dragon, although SpaceX is definitely going to use that time to refine the hardware and the software. Um, but even a three-month delay or six-month delay in their timeline on that critical path would have just would have caused this delay. Um, and so while it is unfortunate we're not going to be seeing a really cool private Mars mission in 2018, we are most likely going to see it launch in 2020 because they'll have even more time to work out potential issues. I'd like to hear Drew and Phil's estimate. Just if we go around here, if you think that we'll launch in, in 2020, when does uh, Phil and Drew think that Red Dragon will launch? I think it'll hit 2020. It's kind of It has to be 2020 or 2022 or, or so. Every 26 months or whatever is the window. I think delaying it two years from 2018 to 2020 is enough time to finish development, um, at least in a, in a pretty good state on Crew Dragon. SpaceX has been talking about uh, kind of leaving Falcon 9 where it is and the configurations it's in um, once they get it to an optimal point. And then they can use those engineering resources um, rather than improving Falcon 9 further to working on things like Falcon Heavy and Red Dragon. So I think in the next few years, we will see that engineering shift in terms of where the resources for SpaceX go um, and the development over time um, on projects like Red Dragon will increase dramatically over what it has been in the past few years. I think that space is very hard and I am generally a pessimist. However, I'm cautiously optimistic that the 2020 launch will happen. I think it'll be awesome, and I think that the development, the potential time is there. It, it could happen. Um, I think any sort of delays that we see, any other failures or unexpected events could have a significant impact on that, and we may not see a 2020 launch, but again, cautious optimism. Now, I want to talk about one of the positive aspects of this delay. Uh, when SpaceX announced Red Dragon and it was coming in 2018, it kind of took the greater space community by surprise of like, oh, well, there's this mission that's going to the, the Red Planet, bringing significant down mass onto the Mars surface. And NASA and a lot of other scientific groups weren't ready for that. And so we had a, an announcement from NASA that there were, would be no NASA payloads on a 2018 Red Dragon just because the timeline of coming up with a scientific proposal and building the experiment and getting it all ready wasn't going to work out. And I I would like to kind of check back in on NASA, like, okay, well, now you have two extra years. There's this very valuable opportunity to land experiments onto Mars. Will we see NASA payloads? And will we see interesting commercial or private scientific payloads on Red Dragon? NASA Aerospace Safety Advisory Panel met this week uh, to discuss the safety uh, issues and requirements for commercial crew. Uh, previously, in the past month or so, uh, the NASA Accountability Report talked about SpaceX and having cracks in their turbine blades uh, and having that being an issue on the road to certifying Falcon for Crew Dragon. And so... Uh, I just want to read through some tweets uh, from Jeff Faust, who was actually at the meeting. He calls it a good discussion about SpaceX cracked turbine blades. Engine redesign to fix this looks technically feasible. Uh, NASA and SpaceX have agreement to do at least seven flights on future Block 5 version of Falcon 9 before putting crew on rocket. 
While previous two failures had different technical causes, underlying root cause seems to be systems engineering and integration, and looks like direct cause of Falcon mishap essentially found, but are loose ends. NASA not completely comfortable, more work to do. So they have cracks. Can you go into more detail? Do you know anything more about the cracks that they're having in their turbines? Is this on all their missions? Is this just on their reused rockets they're planning on using? Like From what I've gathered, so obviously Falcon 9 has nine Merlin engines, each with a single turbine that's pumping in both fuels. And those turbines... Those... <laughs> <laughs> keep going, keep going. It was clear to me. It was clear to me. It just it doesn't seem like a phrase that usually goes following the word obviously. Rocket science. It's obvious. <laughs> your your rocket engines have turbo pumps that have turbines. Uh so anyways, um SpaceX had been obviously they test a ton of Merlin engines at McGregor, they do static fires, they have a ton of data, uh, and now that they have recovered boosters, they have even better data, and they had been encountering uh, cracks in the turbine blades. Uh, however, these were not deemed serious, so obviously they have certain qualification testing, which is uh, the signing off on the state of a component that it is safe to fly. And so these blades, these turbines, even if they had cracks, were still deemed by SpaceX and NASA as safe to fly for cargo. Uh, however, for crew, they were trying to make everything a little bit more safe, obviously. Uh, and NASA's having issue with these turbine uh, blades, these, these cracks. And so it's interesting diving into the tweet. They talk about uh, engine redesign uh, to fix the issue looks technically feasible. So we had been kind of in the dark. I was like, okay, this has been a known issue from, I think, 2015. So they've had a long time to kind of address this issue. Uh, if the engine redesign is looks technically feasible and hasn't actually been done, and the first crew commercial crew mission uh, without people on it, the demo mission, is at the end of 2017, uh, that's not a lot of time to basically completely redesign the turbine blades for these engines. But they're planning on doing it is what you're saying. They're they're because NASA's pressuring them to do so. Yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a NASA requirement, yeah. Um, you mentioned that they would fly the Block 5 configuration for seven flights before NASA mm -hmm. will certify it. Does that mean they have to fix the turbo pumps or turbine blades and then fly the fixed turbines on seven flights before they can certify it for manned missions? From the interpretation I've been seeing, yes. Um, part of Block 5 is the fixed turbine blades, but Block 5 has a bunch of other improvements that we don't even know yet. Uh, but what's interesting is that having a frozen configuration, we've seen various blocks or versions or whatever naming scheme SpaceX wants to call it this time uh, in the, the, the flight heritage of Falcon 9. Uh, but each individual rocket has small improvements, either to the fairing or the legs or the engines. And so they're all a little bit different. And so having basically space this NASA agreement of, we're gonna be launching the same exact configuration of Falcon 9 seven times in a row is actually like a pretty radical thing of, we're not going to make major or minor improvements for a seven flight stretch. So do you think though, they'll make a major improvement then with the engine? They already have to redesign the the blade. 
before they move to block five. Do you think they'll actually come out with a Merlin 1E? Since currently they're launching with Merlin 1D, which had its first flight in 2013, and for SpaceX, four years is kind of a long time to go without innovating some big component. And so do you think they're going to you know, try and have a Merlin 1E with more thrust and, and, and include that in block five? Do the full thrust configuration, uh, which is their latest Falcon 9 major upgrade, um, didn't that include improvements to the Merlin engine? Well, it was the same engine, right? All they did was basically increase the thrust on that engine because it could withhold, withstand more. So it's it's really it's it's so complicated, and SpaceX naming doesn't make it any better. So there's the Merlin One D engine, uh, and there's a version called the the D Plus. It's not official. SpaceX doesn't call it that. They still call it just the D. Uh, but when they have the full thrust Falcon Nine with the densified propellants. When you push densified liquid through a same volume per second turbo pump, which is what the engine has, you have more mass flow per second and more thrust. Uh, but there's also been talk of, you know, the Merlin D is over-engineered, so they're able to push the thrust higher, push things, and without actually, like, you know, looking at the sensor data, it's like, okay, they increased the chamber pressure by this and the fuel rate by this. We don't know what's going on. We do know that full thrust obviously has a increase in thrust, so the engines are putting out more thrust. And uh, Elon Musk has hinted or pointed at a slight increase in thrust later on, which so, we so assume is what's going to be the block five. Full thrust upgrade, um, the major thing would be the densified propellant, and in theory, denser prop alone would increase the thrust, so it's not necessarily an upgrade to the engine. But... Block 5 would be an upgrade uh, with the turbine blades and some other improvements. Maybe, but who knows what SpaceX will call it. Yeah, <laughs> yeah we, we don't know. And again, like most of these engines are handmade. There, you know, there is some automation, but each engine it is unique to some extent. And so there could have been a half dozen or hundreds of improvements. We just don't know. Without actually looking at each engine and what actually changed, we just don't know. Why don't they call it the Merlin 2? Do you guys have any idea why the Merlins are, are iterated with Merlin 1A, Merlin 1B, Merlin 1C? Why does SpaceX name anything the way they name things? Maybe it's just not significant enough. They went from one well, there, to there's nine. there's nine engines on the Falcon 9, so that kind of has a logical thing that, that you know, sticks out. <laughs> or they well, they had count. a Falcon 5. They're like, there's a Falcon 1, <laughs> there's a Falcon 5, there's a Falcon 9. And then there's the Merlin 1A, 1B, which never actually flew. There's the 1C, which they flew the first square grid Falcon 9s yep. on. And then the 1D is the Octo grid or the Octo web. And then they've, like, every significant change to the engine, they've added a letter. Um, but for the full thrust, they just didn't. So that's cool. Uh, and we also went from Falcon 9 to Falcon 9 1.1 to Falcon 9 R the Falcon 9 1.1 full thrust because... Well, let's hope they make it better for Raptor when they finish the development of that. <laughs> yeah, And, like, they had Merlin 2. They had, a, like, a initial presentation on Merlin 2, but that's what became Raptor, which is keeping in with, you know, the uh, bird of prey theme. Yeah. But it's just, it's just awfulness. <laughs> All right, let's talk more about uh, what's happening with, with SLS. 
Well, it's interesting you, you bring up NASA because they're kind of, they may be shifting their direction pretty soon here, especially with the new uh, administration in the White House. Um, they've recently started looking at making the first SLS flight a crewed mission. Basically, EM-1 would be uh, reconfigured to uh, have crew that could go out to, I think, near lunar orbit. Is that what it was? Um, and then return humans back to Earth. That's going around, and I've kind of been surprised. I don't know about you guys, but looking at you know Jeff Faust tweets and, and different people at, at NASA, what they've been saying about this, and it seems to them to be something that's that's pretty feasible. Like when I initially saw this headline, you know, oh, like you know, new deputy of NASA, like putting out a call to see if we could put crew on EM one. My first reaction was, wow, no way that will happen. It's it's too soon for NASA EM one. They've been talking about for years. How could they just change it last minute? And right now, just looking at the news that's coming out of it, it, it seems like a lot of people are, are are saying that, yeah, it actually would be possible. We'd have to make a bunch of sacrifices, but it's still possible, which has been surprising for me to see. Yeah, one uh, thing I'd like to point out is this: this is uh, this memo that went around saying um, we should look at putting crew on SLS. It's not like a decision; it's kind of an investigation to see if it's feasible. Um, but I'd like to give a shout out to Anthony Colangelo uh, of the Main Engine Cutoff podcast. He did a whole episode um, kind of discussing what this could mean. And one of his theories is that this, is, this uh, memo is an indication, perhaps, of... Uh, it's not just like out of the blue, standalone. Hey, we should... That would be a good idea. Let's go do it. It would be an indicator of some deeper changes or some other directions they might go as part of a larger plan for SLS and Orion um, instead of just an ad hoc, hey, let's try to speed it up by uh, cutting out some of those test flights. Yeah, I think I think it's more likely that there will be a restructuring of the greater uh, SLS mission plan rather than um, tacking it on as kind of a would be cool thing. What do you guys think? So what do you what do you see that restructuring being like more flights, less flights? Because right now we have EM1, which is supposed to be an unmanned test, EM2 being the first manned test of Orion and the, the SLS Block 1, which is using the interim cryogenic upper stage, which I don't know if that's interim cryogenic propulsion stage. Uh, which is a modified Delta IV upper stage, and then for Block 1B, which is going to be the first manned uh, vehicle having the official SLS upper stage. I can't answer that question. Um, I honestly don't know enough about uh, what NASA kind of has in mind, what uh, the new administration has in mind. Personally, I was kind of taken aback as well uh, for putting crew on... Uh, flight with new hardware that's something kind of that raises a red flag for me oh the space shuttle did it first so nasa so um the history of nasa with the mercury redstone the mercury atlas apollo or um titan gemini and the early Apollo missions with Saturn 1B and even the Saturn 5 all had unmanned test flights where they had the entire rocket with a either boilerplate capsule or a unmanned capsule on top so they could test the full stack, see if any issues occurred. And that's something that's going to happen with commercial crew flights as well. 
Yes, both uh, Starliner and Crew Dragon will fly unmanned once at least before uh, crew is allowed onto the vehicle. Uh, with the space shuttle, the space shuttle did not have an at- uh, autonomous control system. So you had to have a man in the loop uh, for launch and landing to land the space shuttle successfully, unlike the Russian space shuttle, Buran, uh, which actually both of its flights were unmanned. So uh, STS-1, which was uh, a two-crew mission where they actually installed ejector seats, uh, <laughs> which was one of the few flights they had ejector seats, encountered lots and lots of problems, which on retrospection should point out the fact that flying a new stack of hardware with people on it is usually not a good idea. Um, so just going through a anomaly summary on Wikipedia, obviously there's some good primary sources as well. Uh, there was increased acoustic uh, vibration at the launch pad that caused damage to the launch pad and also damage to the orbiter on the tail section. There was uh, ice and paint covering off the external tank that was hitting the orbiter. There was significant damage to the thermal protection tiles on the orbital maneuvering system uh, pods at the end of the the spacecraft, uh, which obviously can lead to issues, as we saw with um, Columbia, the same shuttle, in 2003. Uh, There was also uh, higher than expected uh, aerodynamic pressure, and they had a shifted uh, center of aerodynamic lift compared to the simulations. So they actually had to come in at a steeper angle than what they had practiced with and what they had expected, uh, which was close to the maximum angle. Uh, And if anyone has seen videos of a space shuttle landing, it glides in like a brick. It has an extremely short glide angle. So it has to practically fall before touching down uh, with its wheels. And they were even at a greater angle for the first mission. And so all of these different uh, anomalies when you're flying something as complicated as a rocket plus spacecraft for the first time, um, especially on something like the space shuttle where you don't have any good uh, abort system, uh, is always going to be really risky. Do you think with the abort system aboard uh, Orion, uh, that kind of is a little bit lessened? Because not only will this be... uh, yeah, this will be crew on the first Orion flight for this configuration as well, too, right? So, obviously, with a launch, no, 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 with a launch abort system, that reduces the risk of crew death in if the rocket fails, right? If there's an anomaly, we can try to safely get the crew away, but it doesn't guarantee that they're going to make it out alive. And at the end of the day, you still blew up a rocket and had a failed mission. Right. Um, and even as we see with SpaceX, you know, an uncrewed uh, anomaly like Sierra 7 or a pad explosion like Amos 6, that stops work. You have to like focus back into the program and figure out the root cause and process changes. And so. So still, don't you find it kind of interesting that uh, SpaceX is being requested by NASA to fly at least seven times in a row with the Falcon 9 Black 5. And yet, at the same time, NASA is looking at flying their first untested rocket, you know, a totally new configuration with humans on it for the first time. I think that might indicate just how, or be indicative of just how large NASA is. And with a transition in leadership, maybe these are two different departments that aren't necessarily speaking 
So you have different different uh, factors. The pessimistic view is that people who are running the SLS program don't think they're going to get a second launch. And so they want to push up the timeline to get crew on the first whoa, launch. Whoa, and whoa, whoa. Where, where is that coming from? What do you mean? That is the pessimistic interpretation of this, is that they don't expect EM2 to happen. What do you mean by don't expect? You mean don't expect to get funding to continue the SLS they, program exactly, because it's they, already expensive and behind schedule? And, right. Yes. Well, yes. even we on this podcast have speculated that as a possibility before. Right. Uh, so so like, saying they need to do put crew on it to make it worth continuing as a mission to prove that it is uh, worth the, the money and... And time? Yeah, so like that's the most pessimistic view of, you know, we want to launch crew to, sh- to show our detractors that, you know, Orion works, SLS works, and have an accomplishment attributed to the mission to justify some of the cost. Now, that is a nice, convenient answer of like, oh, like, the whole program's a disaster, we got to pull something out of it. But if you actually look at the reality, SLS has a ton of support in Congress, which are the people making the budget, giving funds to SLS. And if you look at the new administration hasn't come out with a concrete plan regarding space exploration, but the things they have said is we want to go beyond low Earth orbit, we want to go to the moon or Mars, etc. Having SLS is the only way to do that. Like you're not going to be able to redesign or design a new heavy lift rocket and actually achieve those goals. Wouldn't that make the people behind SLS feel more comfortable and less uh, pressured to accelerate having crew aboard SLS? Maybe that's the more optimistic approach is that they've, they are more confident in their ability and they're more confident in their continued support in Congress. So they're going to be more aggressive in their plans. True, that's an interesting viewpoint, but historically and from a, like an engineering perspective, skipping an unmanned test flight is a very risky move as we saw with the first space shuttle test flight and as a contractual requirement for Boeing and SpaceX to have those unmanned tests. And so, you know, if if they were comfortable in the fact that they'll get funding for EM-1, for EM-2, and then one or two SLS launches per year for the next five years, 10 years, I don't think that they would be pushing this um, such uh, so aggressively on the first launch. Uh, So it's a really interesting move that I don't think a lot of people expected. Like if we had seen rumors of all all or a significant majority of the pro SLS senators and congressmen have been voted out or if there had been a like popular movement to cancel S- SLS or some other things have been happening then it would it's like okay like we might not have the money for EM2 let's get it all done in EM1. But we're not seeing that. Everything's like SLS's budget has been approved or over approved every year for the program. Um, so that doesn't seem to be the case. I, I, I still think that even if they fly crew on EM1 or not, regardless, EM2 at most will be the last mission they ever fly. I, and that, that you could say is maybe the pessimistic view. But I think that the progress that Blue Origin and SpaceX and all these other private companies will have made by the time they get to launching EM2 will make the decision obvious. It will be there for them, that there's no way that they can continue to launch a rocket that is no longer reusable. I think the conclusion is, is going to be that within the next two-year time frame. See, I, I agree. Uh, I think the smart money is on EM2 being the second and last SLS mission, uh, but there are other factors at play. 
right now they they are building SLS tanks in Mashoon. They have the welding equipment and whatnot. Um, and they have developed a new five segment solid booster, but the engines are repurposed RS-25 space shuttle engines. And so they've actually borrowed or looted uh, the historical engines from museums to fly on SLS for future flights. And so they have more than enough for two missions, right? They're, they're expending four of these on each SLS. But at a certain point, if you're going to keep a once a year or twice a year flight rate for these, you need to reopen the RS-25 assembly line. And so that's a whole nother expense to SLS. And so I see my most likely kind of way it plays out is when it comes time to open that new line to continue SLS, that's when the big pressure comes in to cancel. But that wouldn't be right now. That would be two, four years from now. So it is really interesting. No, I think, but I think the decision will be pretty soon. That's what's interesting about it is they can't say four years from now, oh, we'll open the assembly line so that we can launch in two months. You know what I mean? That's kind of a progress to to build an assembly line or, or basically rebuild an assembly line to make the RS-25 engines is a process. Um, so so I think that we're going to hear a lot more about this over the next year, 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 maybe a year and a half. Do so you think this memo is the first of many memos or, or publications from the new NASA administration and we'll learn more about their plan? Or do you think this is like, what, what does this memo mean? What's going to come out of it? I don't know. So part, part of me, part of me wonders, and maybe this is the pessimistic view, if they're kind of eyeing to cancel SLS, but because there's been so much push and support from Congress for it, that the way they're going to push toward canceling it is by setting higher goals that they know they can't reach and saying, oh, because you couldn't reach these goals, now we're going to think about shifting our focus to funneling the funds somewhere else. I mean, it could all be kind of a ploy. You know what I mean? It could all be the politics behind it. Who knows what's actually going to happen? But it's just, I think, one possibility. Well, hopefully it's not that. But I think at this point, pessimistic is our most used multi-syllable word in this podcast well no it depends drew i don't know if that is pessimistic because if they said hey it seems like a waste because you know sls can't launch humans until 2025 let's give money to spacex or blue origin or these other companies that can launch humans in three years or four years you know maybe twice as long as they think they will but they'll still do it quicker than nasa can i think to me that would be better for human exploration i just think the 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 kind of subversive method of trying to change funding doesn't make any sense. I don't see why you do that. There's no reason to get that political. I think a lot of the funding in NASA doesn't make sense. I think if you talk about the RS-25, just that alone, they're already planning on taking the old engines from museums is crazy. And they don't currently have a plan for reopening the assembly line. Like that, that to me is like, you already know you're going to have to deal with that battle in a year or two, you should deal with that battle up front. Yeah. The people in are just like, waiting to retire. I don't know. Yeah, and it's so like, you know, <laughs> from my, my perspective of where the industry is right now and where it's going to be in three years or five years, like, it makes sense to just completely cancel SLS right now. Uh, but NASA obviously has a different perspective. They have money invested. They have science programs invested. Uh, I think another um, factor to consider is that there is – uh, EM-1 and EM-2, which are demonstration flights uh, and the first crewed flight, um, but other potential missions on the docket, uh, one of those was the asteroid redirect mission and then Europa Clipper, 
the asteroid redirect mission has kind of has kind of fallen out of uh, favor with NASA. Uh, like that was the coolest mission they could do. Yeah. So like that that was kind of the like third mission, and so like that's becoming kind of uncertain. And having a high speed Europa Clipper mission. That's been gaining a lot of popularity. We saw a pre-phase one kind of plan for that. Uh, but any significant um, Europa probe that would justify a billion-dollar SLS launch is going to be very expensive. And so that's going to require funding from all other parts of NASA to actually get going. So, like, I I think it, if you were an SLS mission planner and you're looking at the docket, you're like, okay, we have a test flight that's going to be flying on a one-off, basically a one-off version of of SLS, and then we're going to have a crewed launch uh, that's basically going to be just a, making sure all the, the systems work. There's not going to be a big scientific goal to that. And then looking out beyond where nothing is nailed down solidly, uh, it kind of makes more sense to bring everything in, close those timelines, because EM2 was looking at 2021 to 2023 for its first launch. And so you're talking about three to five years after the first launch of SLS, where commercial crew will have been flying for five years. Not only that, but we, we just, at least amongst ourselves, speculated that SpaceX would be ready by 2020. Even if they're four years late, they'll still be around the same, same time frame as NASA would be on their current plans, which we're right now saying are speculative at best. Yeah, and, and none of the SLS missions are like Mars-facing, right? Um, and we talked about this briefly in the last episode, where if you're going to do a long-duration mission, Orion can get astronauts to the moon and do a two-week mission around the moon. But if you try to go anywhere longer, you need a habitat uh, to give them more breathing room and more like space to live in and also more food and whatnot. Uh, and so you have to build and design a habitat module, uh, at which point a commercial crew vehicle like Crew Dragon or Starliner does the same job of getting astronauts safely from the ground to low Earth orbit, right? And so that kind of puts Orion into a, a hairy spot of it's great for low Earth orbit and the moon, but if it needs to go anywhere else, it needs additional hardware, which hasn't even been designed, let alone is ready to fly. Yeah. All right. Final thoughts on SLS carrying crew on its first flight? Final thoughts. Let's go around. I think it's unlikely. Unlikely that what? Crew will be aboard the first flight? Correct. I don't think that the first flight with SLS or Orion will have crew. Do you think it'll be on the same track it's on now, or do you anticipate further shifts in, in the plan? Oh, I'm... I'm a pessimist. It'll be delayed. How about you, Augie? I would say 55% chance that it flies without crew, um, 20% chance that it flies with crew, but maybe delayed up to a year. And then I would also say that um, 80% chance that if EM2 flies, it is the last SLS mission that ever flies. Those are some precise estimations there. <laughs> I like it. <laughs> Final thoughts, TJ? Uh, I don't like the idea of flying crew on EM-1, uh, and I don't think it's that likely. But if, if things start changing and the depending on what the administration's NASA budget looks like and path looks like and it becomes EM-1 becomes a crewed flight, uh, I will be watching it with uh, a level of tension 
uh, not seen since the first SpaceX landing attempt uh, and not in a good way. Um, and I also think that it's very likely um, that SLS will be canceled after EM2 if that normal schedule stays aligned. Uh, but if crew launches on EM1, which I don't think is likely, then I think there's a less likely chance it gets canceled after EM1 because that's going to be a whole uncharted territory of whether it's successful or not. And if this happens and NASA, this is very atypical for NASA, even though it's, it's echoing NASA from 1980. Um, so who knows? We'll find out and it'll be exciting. Uh, but one thing is that a SLS launch is going to be an awesome site to watch. Yeah. And again, this, this, idea of crew launch on the first one is still just a memo at this point right but phil you were telling me earlier today about uh citizen science and this opportunity for anyone interested to look at data that's available to the public now so what what were you saying about that yeah so this is really cool uh let's let's move on to something a little more lighthearted. um so nasa uh has called upon citizen scientists, uh, which is basically anyone with two eyes and an internet connection, uh, to help search for Planet Nine. So Planet Nine is is the nickname for um, something that astronomers have noticed in the outer solar system, looking at uh, Kuiper Belt objects and other things way far out from the sun. They've noticed things in their trajectories that indicate something very massive might be out there, kind of altering the trajectories of those objects and it behaves in a way you'd expect a planet to but we haven't seen a planet out there and that's planet nine and there's a telescope out there uh, by nasa called the wide field infrared survey explorer also known as wise another beautiful acronym and that has taken huge pictures of space all around and um, it's taken pictures of the sky in the same place multiple times so what you can do as a citizen scientist is go to backyardworlds.org and actually look at real pictures taken by the WISE telescope. And you click through a few buttons and look at the same portion of the sky and you tick through it to see changes in what's out there. And so if you have a good eye for it, you can actually see things moving across the sky and they have guides um, to help you identify what the things you're seeing could be. And so, um, you know, it could be an asteroid, it could be a comet way out there, um, and these things are quantified and we know, uh, but anyone out there, anyone that's using this website, um, from a NASA scientist themselves to um, a high school student, could be the person to discover Planet Nine. And the hope here, as uh, you'll find out later in a, in a later episode with uh, Dr. Jennifer Connolly, there aren't enough grad students out there <laughs> who might know exactly what they're looking for to peruse all of this data. There's just too much data. So the hope is to expedite the process. Yeah. If you do decide to check out Backyard, wor backyard Worlds yourself, um, what you'd be looking for is a blue dot that uh, hops and jumps across the images significantly, like way more than a star would move across the sky, for example. It it's just really cool. And uh, it's real astronomy that you can do without any 
requirements. You don't even need a degree. You don't need anything. You just have to be patient and, and look through this data. It's crazy that those little specs that are kind of just flying by your eye when you go on the website are, are kind of bigger than everything you've ever known. Just the tiny specs that fly. Yeah, I really think it's, I think it's really interesting, this idea of distributed processing of scientific data. And we see that kind of taking over everything in life. Obviously, cloud computing is a really big buzzword nowadays where, you know, the, the applications you use are running on a thousand different servers around the world sp spread out. Uh, and uh, another, when I first heard about this project, another project I heard of was uh, called Folding at Home. Uh, which was a distributed protein folding program where you could download some software on your computer and it would send you bits and uh, pieces of like a folding of proteins. Uh, Augie, you can probably talk a lot more about this. Um, and it would distribute that same bit of work out to you know, a thousand people or however, and then get the results back and see which one was most likely and slowly work through the tens of thousands or however many iterations this protein could go through. Right, but this is a little different. This isn't using your computer's ability. You're not, you're not um, when you log into this website, you're not sharing your computer's resources like Folding at Home does. Um, this is actually something that computers have a really hard time doing. Um, human brains are really adept at recognizing patterns or changes, um, small changes like something moving across an image that looks to be the same except for like one thing. Um, so this is something that huge servers and cloud computing is not good at, and that's why they need people uh, to look at these pictures. But uh, I also think it's, it's interesting that we're using humans in a very similar way. Like we're organizing humans to you know come together and use our interest in astronomy to do a distributed computation, even though it's not mm -hmm. using actual computers. Mm -hmm. And this isn't the first time. Um, a few years ago, uh, the Kepler data, Kepler had made a lot of uh, observations looking for exoplanets, um, and it identified some things that could be or might not be uh, star systems that had exoplanets. And um, citizen scientists were able to confirm uh, the measurements that the computers couldn't tell. Yeah, it's, it's the same principle. Um, so this is, it's really cool. I, I'm going to try it. I, I looked at it a little bit. Uh, I'm not very good at it, uh, but I'm going to keep trying because I want to discover a new planet. So uh, the last bit of space news that came out this week was a major announcement um, about some observations made by the Spitzer Space Telescope on a system called TRAPPIST-1, which is 39 light years away. Um, and it's significant because it's a small um, star with seven uh, Earth-sized planets, and three of them are in the habitable zone, so they could have liquid water around them. The knowledge we have about this system in particular is very specific. We know there are seven planets. We know roughly their size, uh, can guess at their mass, and future telescopes like James Webb uh, will be able to look and see the composition of the atmospheres of these planets as well. So I love how that stuff comes out. Uh, but the really off-putting part is always how far away these things are. Like when you think about 39 light years, that's faster than anything, period, can travel over a course of 39 years. Uh, but that kind of stuff always makes me wonder if the future of exploration will be 
you know, based on that constraint where you'll essentially have tons of people that get on board a giant ship, maybe something, you know, 10 times the size of the ITS and they travel for, you know, 50 years or just some absurd amount of time. And the whole goal kind of of their life is, is, is basically moving to another planet. You know, it could be, you know, the next kind of evolution of, of ourselves when, when we want to continue exploring and continue reaching out, if, if that's kind of what it's going to come to, if we can't, you know, figure out wormholes or something else. Mm-hmm. Even that, even that far-fetched mission of sending a lot of tiny, tiny, uh, Pico satellites to Proxman Centauri. Proxman Centauri is what? One light year away? Four maybe? And, uh, Trappist one is 39. So, uh, the best we can do or the best we can hope to do in, you know, my lifetime is to observe it. But the best thing that I get excited about is the fact that observing it, we can learn so much. And like, if we find out a little bit more about these planets and the, their composition, their atmospheres, we can make a lot of inferences as to how they formed um, and how other systems formed and whether they have life how likely is life in the universe and all that just from observations. Thanks for listening to another episode of SpexCast. This one was a lot of fun to record and with all the space news coming out, we're sure that we'll have more discussions like this one. Next week, we'll be back discussing the TRAPPIST-1 system in detail with Dr. Jennifer Connolly, a visiting professor at RIT with a PhD in extragalactic astronomy. If you want to participate in a future discussion or suggest topics for us to talk about, you can send us a tweet at RITSpecs or an email to specscast at gmail.com. You can also look for RIT Space Exploration on Facebook at facebook.com slash RITSpecs and uh, visit our website at specs.rit.edu. If you like what you're hearing on the show, give us a rating or a review on iTunes and let us know how we did. Our music is courtesy of Nelson Scott. He just released another new single, which you can find on Spotify, SoundCloud, or his website. Just look for The Nelson Scott. You've been listening to SpexCast. We'll see you next week.